Okay, now, a message for you and me. So, remember, we're still in spiritual warfare. Jesus is talking to the church at Sardis, which is the sleeping church. They have a reputation. They say, we're alive. And what did he say? You're dead. So, today we want to look at a lesson I've entitled, Wake Up and Grow Up. Jesus says you're alive. I mean, you say you're alive, but you're dead. This is all on spiritual immaturity. So we're going to be looking at people that are born again, but they don't really start growing up. Or maybe they grow a little bit, they get discouraged, no discipline, they stay out of the Word, and so they don't continue to grow. So Barna took a survey, and the survey is about asking the question, who is primarily responsible for your spiritual growth? Are you responsible? You're responsible for your growth. You can't depend on your preacher, your teacher, your Sunday school teacher, or anyone else. You just need God's word, surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is what will grow you. You stay in the word, surrendered with a clean vessel, and it will grow you. So we basically are responsible for our growth. So, but they found out the majority of Christians today are spiritually shallow. I agree with that. And I mean, I, I would take any church, and you, just a cross-section of the church, you're going to find a lot of the people are spiritually shallow. So I found this little graphic, and I just love it, because here's the little bird down there, and he says, welcome to the shallow. And so here, here we are, and we don't get deep into God's word. We just stay kind of a surface relationship with the Lord. Now, here were some of their answers. 81% of them believe, and I probably would have been in this group, that my spiritual maturity correlates to how hard I am trying. Sound familiar? How hard I'm trying to follow all the rules in the Bible. I'm trying to be that good Christian. I'm trying to by all my activities, my committees, I'm at the church. Every time the doors open, I was going on outreach. You know, we were uh, youth sponsors, all of that. So I'm trying really hard to be spiritual. That's what 81%, that's what they uh, gauged their spirituality by. I was in that club. I'm hoping some of you were in there with me. Okay, now, 30%, only 30% mentioned being spiritually mature, I have a relationship with Jesus as one of the characteristics of spiritual maturity. 14% of them said, I'm spiritually mature because I live a moral lifestyle. There are many non-believers that live a fairly moral lifestyle. And remember, moral is a relative term. Okay, 12% says, I'm spiritually mature because I can take the Bible, God's word, and apply it to my life. And only 6%, well, 6% said, I'm spiritually mature if I know how to share my faith. So that was what the survey, uh, the results of the survey. Then they asked preachers that are actually in a church and in the pulpit. And they asked them, nearly 90% of them said a lack of spiritual maturity is one of our nation's biggest problems. That's true. But listen to what the preacher said. A minority of them stated, but that's not the case in my church. <laughs> no. 
So then they asked these preachers, same ones, identify the most important portion in the Bible that tells us what spiritual maturity is. Okay, there's their question. Three-quarters of them gave a generic response. That means they didn't know. Now, one-third of them said, you want to talk about spiritual maturity? Just look at the whole Bible. They don't really know. 17% of them said, well, just study the Gospels. And then 15% said, well, look at the whole New Testament. 10% said, well, we're just going to look at Paul's letters. Only one out of five of them could even give a specific verse in the Bible that told about spiritual maturity. That's pretty sad. Okay. We need to understand that the Christian walk, my spiritual walk from the time I'm born again and I am growing in Christ, it is a battleground. It is a battleground. It is never a playground. And we have to realize from the day we're born again, if you were 8 or 58, it doesn't matter. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are trying to prepare you for that greater life that is to come after this one. This life is 70, 80, maybe 90 years old. That life in his kingdom is a thousand years. And the Bible really doesn't tell us a lot about eternity, but it tells us a lot about his 1,000-year reign and our part in that, the opportunity that we have. So he's always preparing me. He's refining me. I'm going through tests. Are they polishing me and refining me? They're growing my faith. The Word is growing me. He's preparing me to be in that uh, in his kingdom. So when you become born again, you are entered in the race. You are entered in his army. There's different uh, ways that it's portrayed in the scriptures. So at the moment of justification, when I was eight years old, even though I didn't realize it at the time, every one of us get entered in the race and there's a prize. Right? There's a prize. Okay, we're all going for that. Of course, the prize is eternal life with Jesus Christ and being in his kingdom, having a share in that, a joint and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. We're all going for that, and he wants to prepare you. And if you, if you don't grow in Christ, you are not going to be able to have the position he has for you in his kingdom. You will not, and I believe we're going to be able to show that scripturally. Now, we are also commanded, am I commanded to walk in the Spirit? Yes, and so that means I've yielded to the Spirit. I spend a lot of time at the dung gate, and all of you should know what that is now. That's where you get your vessel clean, you ask him to clean you, ask him to point out sins that need to be confessed, and then ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. you got to get unclogged before he can fill you and have control. Otherwise, you've got control. And he promises me, here's a promise for you, if I will do that, I'll be walking in the Spirit, and I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So he can grow me, and he's preparing me, each one of us, for a greater life than what we have here. And you think your life here, 70, 80, 90 years, you're talking a thousand years of your future with Jesus Christ. 70, 80, 90 years is nothing compared to a thousand. But this is the time you have to be prepared. 
to show obedience and faithfulness to sanctification. So the Reformation, remember Sardis is the church of the Reformation. The Reformation that you and I need is to allow the Holy Spirit come complete the work in me that he started. So many of us, we, he starts the work in us, I'm born again, I have the life of Jesus Christ in me, the Holy Spirit's in me, and I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then what do many of us do? We try to go mature ourselves. We try to grow ourselves, and it is impossible. We cannot do it. You cannot grow yourself. So we have to, com we ask him to complete the work. It's Pardon, uh, not pardon me, but I'm sorry that, I, you know, I'm trying to uh, take it over myself. I'm trying to take the reins, you know, and mature myself. Help me to see that I cannot do that and show me how to do it scripturally and biblically. So the church at Sardis has a real problem. He said, you Christians are sleeping. You're like the walking dead. He called them the church of the living dead. They have a real problem. So let's read the letter that he wrote to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis, here's what you're going to write. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's another lesson. Why did he say that? Remember, he introduces himself to each church differently depending on what they need. He says, I know your works. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Then he says, I want you to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain because they're ready to die, and I have not found your works perfect. That means complete or mature before God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard. How did I receive Jesus Christ? By faith. He said, remember, because you're also going to grow, how? By faith, not by your works, really. Hold fast and repent. And if you won't watch, I'm going to come upon you like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'm coming upon you. And I love this passage, and I'm going to do a lesson on it, Lord willing. You have a few names, even in Sardis where he said they're all dead. You have a few that have not defiled garments. I want you to notice it is extremely important. You see there's two garments. And we're going to talk about that in another lesson. And they, the ones who have not defiled their garments, get to walk with him in white because they are worthy that would be another lesson. Now, the message to Sardis lists no specific enemies. They did, he didn't mention anything internal or external. So the problem of this church in John's time, the religious Jews weren't bothering them. The Roman Empire wasn't bothering them. They weren't plagued with a false teacher. And listen, because we've just come out of Pergamos and uh, Thyatira. And listen to this one. No name calling in the letter to Sardis. No, nothing about liars, nothing about Balaam, nothing about the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. There's no synagogue of Satan, there's no throne of Satan, there's no depths of the Satan. 
None of that is in this letter to Sardis. Yet no other message is more damaging or urgent than this one. This is one of the most damaging because I believe we're talking about ruling and reigning with him. I think we're talking about being the bride of Christ. And I think we're talking about our part in his millennial kingdom. A few have not defiled their garments. We have a garment of justification. We have a garment of sanctification. And he said only those who have not defiled their garments are going to be worthy to walk with him in white. I believe that's the bride. I'm getting off on another lesson. We'll go on. So, Walt Kelly in his comic strip Pogo, which I imagine most of you know, they're sitting there and said, we have met the enemy. And who is it? Can we be our own worst enemy? Yes, our old man and our old nature certainly can. So too often when I encounter there's no spiritual adversary bothering me, it's because I'm the enemy. And many of us have experienced that in our lives. So G.R. Beasley Murray said this about the church of Sardis. He said the appearance of the Sardis church is that it's a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral parlor and the Lord is not deceived. So that's his description of the church of Sardis. And what needs to happen? They've got to wake up because he said, you need the Holy Spirit. Stir up the living spirit of God. Do we have the Holy Spirit in us? But sometimes if we're grieving him, if we are uh, quenching him, we can actually be dead. When, when Jesus looks at us, get you confess your sins get your vessel clean as the Holy Spirit repent because you've been grieving him repent because you've been quenching him and ask him stir up the spirit of the living God in me and that's what he wanted to do in this church George Ladd said about the church of Sardis it's a picture of nominal Christianity do you believe that there are people that are nominal Christians I know some people say there aren't they'll say they aren't saved well, I think the Bible disagrees because the Bible talks about carnal Christians a lot. Paul is constantly in his letters telling us to walk worthy of the vocation that we have been called to. We're to walk in light, don't walk in darkness, etc. So there are people that become born again, but they do not grow up and they don't mature, but they're still born again. As the Bible says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 3, they will arrive at the judgment seat with their tail feathers burning. Right? They have nothing but wood, hay, and stubble because they have not been obedient. Uh, that was a paraphrase. It doesn't really say, it says saved as so as by fire. Yeah, okay. I didn't want y'all to go researching that. <laughs> Where the tail feathers burning? Okay. So he says, George Ladd said, it's a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, and they're so busy with all the externals of religious activity, but they don't have spiritual life and power in their church, or in the individual lives. Now, I just thought of something to insert here. Uh, several people have asked me why I'm not talking about end times. Let me tell you, you can, talk, you can get end times. Go listen to Jack Hibbs. Go listen to Jan Markell. Go listen to Amir Safardi. You can get everything you want to know about end times and how it relates to the Bible. My passion right now 
till uh, Christmas break. I want us ready for the judgment seat of Christ. That's where we need to be ready because we know that uh, I think right now we're getting into the beginnings of the Psalm 83 war. And I just, I see the end coming, and I think the return of Christ is pretty soon. And my passion for me and you is for us to be ready for the judgment seat. That's what counts. Okay? Now, next. So, Sardis is an example of carnal believers. They make a good start. We can look in the Bible. There are many characters in the Bible that started well, but they didn't end well. They fail to move on and grow up and learn to experience my position in Christ. That was a lot of my trouble. I knew all this stuff, but I didn't know how to appropriate it in my life. And a lot of it, I was not really discipled in that manner. And I was a young girl. You know, didn't really know how to get into the Bible and study. So I was just kind of following the examples of what the culture was telling me. So you get active and engaged in works, but you're temporally dead and out of fellowship with Christ. So you and I are going to go to the book of Hebrews. Just a little bit of background. You have to keep this in mind. Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. They had accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Savior. So are they born again like you and me? Their faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. The only difference is they were Jews before. They're still Jews, but they were in the Jewish religion. However, what's happening at the time that this was written? Persecution is rising, and where's my persecution coming from? The religious Jews, like the Pharisees, and they are really giving the, the Jews that have walked away from that, and they are now believers that Jesus is the Messiah, they're giving them all kinds of grief and persecution. So that's, that's the uh, audience to whom T Hebrews is written. And I really thought, remember our lesson last week? God told um, Moses and them and Joshua, I brought you out of where you were in bondage and enslaved, and I want to take you into your inheritance where you can live in freedom under the power of the Holy Spirit. That, and these people had been, they had come out of the Jewish religion, which was the law and all the sacrifices and slitting the lamb's throat and all of that, and they accepted Jesus Christ, and now they're to live in freedom. And they're to live in their spiritual inheritance. But they're tempted to return to the Jewish faith. They could not take the persecution any longer. So what are they going to do? I'm going to go find me a lamb and I'm going over to the synagogue over here. And I'm going to uh, tell the priest to slit the throat. Get back under all of that. Just to escape persecution. Jesus said, I brought you out of that. Because I want to bring you in to live that abundant life where he will give you victory. He will give you what you need to endure persecution should it come into your life. The book of Hebrews actually has five warnings. You and I are going to focus on only one of them. Do we know from Hebrews that the word of God is living and active? It is. Now, the result, if you don't take heed to these warnings... He said, if you don't take heed, there are going to be severe consequences in your life. And he's going to have five warnings. Take heed and don't put your fingers in your ears like I'm not listening. You've got to take heed starting with number one. 
George Whitfield says, Give diligent heed to the things that are spoken from the word of God. Diligent. You are focused. Diligence. You're listening. You want it applied in your life. So here's our little guy floating down Lazy River. This is warning number one, which is in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And in chapter 1, God has just said, all of the final revelation is being spoken by whom? Jesus, his son. That's the final word. And he talks about his glory and his millennial kingdom and everything. And you turn to chapter 2, and it says, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. If you forget about who Jesus is, if you forget about how he can work in your life, if you forget about that millennial kingdom, your part in it, you will start drifting. And that's the warning here. Pay attention to what you already know in this word. Pay attention to it. Take earnest heed. Now, if I don't, what's going to happen? What happens to the guy who's uh, drifting? He begins to neglect the word. The Bible begins to gather dust and says, read me. And he's beginning to lose interest in reading it. If I neglect the word, what begins to happen to my faith? I begin doubting. People can begin doubting when they haven't been in the Word, if they're not with a fellowship of believers, if they're not in Bible study, if they are not being discipled. Now, if that happens to you, you then your hearing is out of order. He says, you know, if, uh, listen to what the Spirit has to say, but we can have ears that are stopped up. And we can have, I don't want to hear that. Why? It's convicting. You know, so... And then what happens? You see this guy here? Maybe he's studying his Bible, and what happens? It's becoming boring. You don't get a thing out of it. You have no interest in it. And it all started with drifting. Now, here's a lazy learner. I know our church has some of these people in it. <laughs> Looking at your watch. Wonder if he, how much longer is he going to be? falling asleep, not listening. You should have your Bible open. I know some of you are on a phone. You should, whoops, mine's upside down. You should, that won't help. You should have your Bible open, engaged with the preacher, especially if he's t teaching you truth in the Word. Get your, if you take notes, some people are note takers, get it out, be engaged with where he is. Ask the Holy Spirit to use what he's saying to convict you and Get your life where it needs to be. Engage with the speaker. Okay. Now, after that happens, if you don't do it, you're a lazy listener. You are becoming totally disinterested. You know what happens? People begin to despise the word. I don't want to hear it. And that's what some people say when you try to talk to them about coming back to Christ. And you're trying to witness to them. I don't want to hear it. See, they're in stage four. That's stage four. Now, what happens? They get to where they, def they are defiant. They absolutely will start rebelling against God himself. So they defy God's word. They're in absolute rebellion. And the example here was Esau when you get to that chapter 12 in Hebrews. So those are the five warnings. Those are the steps. And with, if you remember with Stephen and Acts, here are people that defy God's word. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. They wanted him to hush, and they stoned him. 
That's when you're in complete defiance of God's word. So Hebrews, that whole book is a call to maturity because these are Jewish believers. But boy, the persecution's so bad, I can't stand it. So I'm willing to leave and go put myself back under the law, go get a lamb. So he says, you've got to grow up. If you don't keep growing, you, that's what you're going to want to do. Persecution may come to you and me. And if we aren't grow, growing in Christ and we're not maturing, we will be tempted to deny him. We will be. You've got to be strong. You've got to be grounded and rooted and established. So the writer is gravely concerned about the Jewish Christians of his day. The implied threat is these believers are going to stumble and not appropriate to themselves all the glories of Jesus Christ, and they're going to go back to what God just brought them out of. So, in chapter 4, these are the let us statements. And this, he's writing to the Hebrew Christians. And he says, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short. Remember, we had that last week where you go in and enter and claim. Remember the East Siders? The East Siders got all the way to the Jordan River, and they said, we don't want to cross, we don't want to enter our inheritance, we're content over here. Fear that none of you will be found to have fallen short, and you won't enter and claim, you won't surrender totally to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, he says, let us labor. Does that sound like work? We're going to labor to enter that rest. It takes discipline. You've got to get in the Word. And in verse 14, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. And verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. So these are all the admonitions the writer of Hebrews is giving to these guys. Imagine that you're the, the people, and I'm up here admonishing you, let us do this, let us do this, and let us do something else. And he turns the page to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he thinks they're ready. And so in chapter 5, he begins to explain the heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ. And you know what they're doing? They're falling asleep and tapping their watch. They're not ready for it. They can't take the meat of the word. And he says, y'all aren't ready for what I want to teach you. So what does he do? He's going to put his lesson on pause. I want to tell you all about this. But i got to put it on pause here. And from chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 7, verse 1, we're on the pause button. And then he's going to go back in chapter 7 and continue what he started in chapter 5. Are you all with me? Yes. Good. Now, he's going to, in these verses, he's going to rebuke them. He's going to warn them and admonish them because they have stopped growing spiritually. Okay, so these are the verses we're going to. Now, why are you being tempted to go back into legalism? He says, because you're not going on into maturity in Christ. You got to keep growing. You got to keep maturing. Or you're going to be tempted to just, you know, walk away. Persecution comes and you're tempted to walk away. So you and I are going to focus on warning number three. And it's all about wake up, grow up. It is time to uh, progress, make spiritual progress. And that's going to be his emphasis. Now, 
in chapter 5, verse 11, and when you get home, you might take your Bible and mark these things so you know what it is when you come to it. Chapter 5, verse 11, think of one bookend. And the other bookend is going to be in chapter 6, verse 12. So all of that material in between is his admonishing them to grow up. So he starts in chapter 5, verse 11. And he says, concerning him. Now, do you all know who he's been trying to tell them about? Melchizedek. And they're like, why do I care about him? I'm not going to listen. And they, they wouldn't listen. That he's been trying to teach them about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he brings in the word Melchizedek and they all just kind of, that goes over my head. And they don't want to study. They don't want to dig. So he says, concerning him, I've got so much I want to tell you. But it's so hard to explain all this to you because you're dull of hearing. You know what you want to hear? Oh, tell me about David and Goliath. Tell me about Moses in the basket. These are the basics. He's trying to get them to get into the meat of the word and to grow up and to, to grow spiritually. And they're saying, I don't want any of that. Because it takes concentration. It takes digging. It takes studying. And he says, you know what? Your spiritual growth is stagnant. So he's in chapter 5, verse 11. That's our first bookend. Now, here's the other bookend, and I'm jumping over to verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Here's the other bookend, and we're going to go from here, where you won't listen, to verse 12. We're going to do half of it today. Couldn't get it all in one lesson, so we're going to have to have the other half next week. Listen to verse 12. Here's his goal, where he wants to go with them. We don't want you to become lazy. What did he just said? Your growth is stagnant. You won't listen. You're hard of hearing. My goal for you is that you will not become lazy. Verse 12. I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience. Faith and patience. And if you imitate people who through faith and patience, what did they get? Notice the word inherit. They inherited what was promised. But it takes faith and patience. Back in chapter 5, verse 11, if you're a lazy listener and you don't want to learn any more than about, you don't want to go past David and Goliath and all the stories, you don't want to go past all that, you will never imitate those that faith and patience are going to inherit the promises. So it's important to grow. Keep your spiritual ears open. So stay the course and press on. So I like this uh, version of it. It says, be like those who stay the course. They have committed faith and they will get everything promised to them. That's what I want. How about you? Okay, but we cannot be a lazy listener. We've got to be willing to dig and study and ask the Holy Spirit to apply it to my life. Okay, so that summarizes the main message of this section. Is he talking to believers? That's important, and I'm going to be hammering that point because we do not want to misinterpret chapter 6. Because a lot of people misinterpret chapter 6, and it's easy to do if you don't keep it in context. And context is king. We have to keep it in context. Now, 
Well, let's see what Peter says about us growing up. He says, all believers begin as babies in Christ, right? All of us. First Peter 2, 2 and 3. He says, when you're born again, you should be like that newborn baby. You are craving, in the Amplified it says, you're thirsting for, you earnestly desire the pure unadulterated spiritual milk. That by it, what's it? The word, the pure unadulterated word. That's your spiritual milk. By it, you will be nurtured and grow into complete salvation. You cannot neglect this. You cannot. Now, Peter says, because you've already tasted of the goodness and kindness of the Lord, did he save you? Did he wash you, wash your sins away in his blood? So you've already tasted, right? And now you need to keep on and desire more. What else does he have for me? You want more and more of this word and apply it in your life. So in Ephesians, Paul is going to talk about spiritual maturity is God's objective for all believers. And some commentator named this section, come grow with us. So, I just chose to use the graphic since it applies to you and me. So, what's the purpose of training in the church? The equipping of the saints. And he goes on in chapter 4. He says, spiritual maturity is God's objective for every believer sitting in this congregation. In your church and mine. He says, he's going to give some as apostles... Some will be a prophet, some evangelist, some are pastors and teachers, and it's all for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Notice the goal. Until we all, every believer sitting in the congregation, in the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of the faith, and we all have the knowledge of the Son of God, and we all become a mature man. To the measure of the stature, who is our stature? Who's the guide? Jesus Christ. We are to grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's what all the gifts in the church are to be used for, to equip the saints so we all, as a group, become mature in the fullness of Christ. So, as a result, if that's happening in your church, as a result, he said, we may no longer be children. If we stay a child, a babe in Christ or a little child, we will be tossed and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Somebody on television or somebody in the book says, I have a new revelation. I've, I've got this, I've got that. And a baby, an immature person, will go chasing after everything they hear. We're not to do that. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, they are lying in wait to deceive us. There's lots of wolves out there. A lot of them. Now, you can look in the upper right corner. I use this little graphic quite a bit because I can't even, I can't improve it at all. <laughs> Spiritual maturity is lacking, I'm going to say, in most believers. The percentage with all the surveys, it goes high into the 80 percentiles. Not because we have not had time. Most of us have had a lot of time since we were born again to keep growing and maturing. The problem is 
we don't use our time wisely, and we haven't applied ourselves. Life starts happening. Okay, so he says, the truth is, I am either drifting with regard to my salvation because of my neglect, or I am growing, but if I'm growing, is it a deliberate effort and attention to it? It is a deliberate effort. He says, study, you're to be diligent. He says, nobody is going to grow by accident. So you don't just... (laughs) You don't just get born again, go sit in your chair, get the Bible out here while you're watching television or something, and guess what? This isn't going to change you. Nobody is going to grow by accident. It does take effort. It takes discipline. It takes desire. If you don't have it, that's your first prayer. Give me the desire to grow. Give me the desire for your word, the hunger for your word. So warning number three. It's a lack of spiritual growth, and that's exactly what's wrong in the church of Sardis. No progress towards maturity. So he says, wake up. You've got to make spiritual progress. It will be a detriment to your soul if you don't. So, number one, what are some of the steps here? He says in verse 11, you have dullness towards the word. Concerning him, we're talking about Melchizedek, I want to tell you so much, but it's hard for me to explain it to you. I keep trying, but you're dull of hearing. So this implies that you're slothful, lazy. Condition of spiritual apathy and laziness that is going to prevent your spiritual development. It means you have no push to drive, no drive. Because you really don't want to put in the effort to try to understand some of the more complicated stuff. And you remember Peter even said, some of Paul's stuff's hard to understand. Peter said that about Paul's writings. So everything is not cut and dry easy. It's going to take, you've got to cross-reference. You've got to put stuff in context. Maybe look at the Greek. Maybe look at the Hebrew. You've got to look at all kinds of things. But you're dull of hearing. So the result, if a person's dull to the word, I love this commentator's uh, definition, You're the person who has the imperceptive and lethargic nature of a stone. (laughs) You're just like a rock sitting there, and you're not interested at all. So if you're dull to hearing, you're unable to listen to the word, you don't want to receive it. Because it may mean I have to change. I may have to give up something. And you don't want to act on it. That's immaturity. Now, in Galatians, Paul asked the question, you were running so well, who prevented you from obeying the truth? In other words, why are you stopping? You start your backward journey, what step one? Drifting. You start a backward journey if you start drifting from God's word. And then you go into doubt And you begin to doubt. I hear people now say that they were raised in church. I don't know if this is really the word of God. Many young adults are questioning the authority of this book. Many. Now, I like 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And you see two of my little birds are attentive and one is not. For this cause also, Paul said, we thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from him, from Paul, you received it, and what did they say about it? 
this is not the word of the man. This is the word of God that Paul was telling him. And what about the word of God? If you receive it, it works effectually in everyone who believes it. It will work and be effective in each one of us. He who hears, let him hear. Now, number two, inability to share. I'm waiting. Now, see, I go to the trouble to make these things, and some of you never look up. So I'm calling your attention. I'm teasing. Okay, inability to share. So let's look. See, see the congregation up there? The congregation is nothing but a bunch of little toddlers. Toddlers are going to fight. They want their own way. Is life all about them? Yeah. yeah, okay. Inability to share. He says in the next verse, we're at the end of chapter 5. By this time, you ought to be a teacher. You need someone to teach you again, though, the first principles of the oracles of God. Everybody wants to learn John 3.16. They want to learn Psalm 23 because they learned that as a child. They don't want to go on and keep going. And most of you are probably mature enough that you ought to be teaching somebody what you know. A new believer, you ought to have somebody that you're teaching what you know. He says, but you have a re you're regressing your failure to advance, your lack of development. Instead of helping others to grow... These believers in Sardis, and he's talking to the Hebrews, you're, you want to learn again the simple teachings of the Christian life. Everybody wants to learn about Jesus born in Bethlehem again and again and again. They don't want to go on to the stuff they don't know about. That's what he's saying. So it's like you're in a second childhood. The ability to share God's word is a, it's a spiritual, the spiritual truth is a mark of maturity. You should be able to share what you know with someone else. Because there's many people that don't know what you know. And you ought to be able to help tell them what you know. He says, failing to use your time wisely. Mm. For this, though by this time you ought to be a teacher, he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. They had been believers for a time. These people are not new Christians. Every Christian who's been a believer for, for a few years should be knowledgeable enough in the teaching of Scripture to instruct a younger believer. All of you should probably be mentoring someone. One-on-one. -on -one. I think most of you in here probably have that ability that you could do that. Use your time wisely. Okay. Y'all know that God has made me be transparent and share dirty laundry a lot. And so I thought maybe I had shared everything. But uh, while I was working on this lesson uh, yesterday and Monday, something just came heavy on my heart. And I said, come on, God, I have shared enough. I don't need to share any more. And he says, mm-hmm. And, you know, so I just kind of put it over there. And then yesterday, I was going through the lesson trying to wrap it up. And it came, that, that elephant that sits on your chest, there it was again. I said, okay. So we're going to talk about using our time wisely. Uh, it starts with drifting. And remember, with drifting, you will fail to use your time wisely. 
First thing, you start drifting from here. Okay, so I'm going back to the year 2000 and 2002. This is not in your notes. I didn't want it in black and white. It would just be on the internet. Okay, most of you know that in the very late 90s, Laura was the victim of a sexual crime. Her life began to go in a downward spiral. Uh, things were not good at home. Uh, Paul was traveling some, and if he was home, he worked late. So I was bearing the brunt of a lot of the conflict between she and me. Uh, we had gone to court. We had a protective order. The kids at school were saying, Laura, uh, there's no, why are you doing this? No big deal. Okay? So Laura's uh, life is really spiraling down. And I'm trying to deal with all of it. Um, so anyway, it, things got really bad in, in our home. My youngest brother, as most of you know, is a was a missionary in Alaska. And he and I, there's eight years difference, but he and I talked almost every Saturday morning. And um, he knew what was going on in our life and how Laura was spiraling down and everything. And he talked to his wife, because they had a little four-year-old, and he said, why don't you let Laura come live with us for a while? You can imagine my heart just jumped. Yes. You know, and so I asked Laura about it, and the blessing was that she wanted to go because she loved my brother more than she did me at that time. And so we got her all packed up. My heart was really encouraged, and we set her off to Alaska in January of 2000. Now, my brother is, uh, was a missionary, but he had a heart for the down and out, just kind of like Laura does. Laura always did, but she had no discernment to go with it. And, uh, but my brother got her a job in Alaska. She lived above the Arctic Circle. And then uh, he had a soup kitchen. She loved doing all that kind of stuff. And he had a youth center. She enjoyed doing all that kind of stuff. Got her enrolled in school. She was 17. Now, after a few months, my brother called me. And I mean, he was crying. He said, Francine, I really wanted to be the one that would be able to help her. And he thought he could. But he said, even after a few months, she's in trouble again, running with the wrong crowd, She's very rebellious at this time, and there was even evidence of demonic influence uh, in the house. And he has a four-year-old. Uh, one instance, uh, you know how when you go and you do a hot shower and the steam on the mirror and everything? He went in after she had come out, and there were demonic things uh, little characters and everything in the steam. They found demonic characters that she had uh, drawn between her mattress and box springs. And she told me later that she prayed to demons and so forth, and it invited one into her life. Uh, she got mad at my brother one day. He had a two-story, and she uh, was stomping down the stairs because she was a little mad at him, and she was going to walk out, the out of the house, and when she walked by his cat in the living room, the cat dropped dead. I know. So all of this was going on, and uh, so my brother didn't, he needed to get her out of his home at this time. So you can imagine the cycle that I went into. And this was one time in my life, the depression and the fear, why me, why is all of this going on in my life, uh, envy, you know, all of that. And that was going on in me. So I began to sit at the computer for hours 
with AOL dial-up. It was terrible. <laughs> and I began calling all these places. We didn't want Laura to come back home because we knew that she would be back in with the crowd that she was running with here. And if y'all don't know, there's a satanic group in Dewey. There was it at that time. And they kept calling our house, wanting to know when she was coming home. We didn't want her back here. And so I spent hours and hours and hours on the phone and the computer trying to find a place for us to intercept her on her way home and take her. And uh, trying to come up with the money because it was about $2,500 a month. And uh, so anyway, we finally found a home. I had a lot of references and so forth. And we met her there and on Father's Day of 2000 with her... She was begging me, crying. Mom, if you'll just let me go home, I promise I'll be good. Well, I knew it was not in her to do that, and I knew what was waiting here, and I knew what the story would be. So Paul and I left her in the Rocky Mountains of Montana on Father's Day, an awful parting, and drove off. So I get back home, and you can imagine how heavy my heart is. See, some of y'all didn't know some of this. All you know about is the transgender stuff, which was later. This was much earlier. She's only 17. Uh, my heart was very heavy. And I began, this is the part I really hate to share. I, I quit coming to church on Sunday night. My heart, I was, I was so burdened. My heart was so heavy. I couldn't sit in here without sobbing. And so uh, my walk with the Lord wasn't where it needed to be. And I just thought, I'm going to stay home. And these three shows were on on Sunday night. I looked it up during about 2000, 2001, and 2. And I began to just, Paul came to church a lot by himself, which I'm ashamed of, but he did. Uh, I'm not ashamed that he came, ashamed that he had to come by himself. Okay, and so uh, I began watching Touched by an Angel, uh, Sue Thomas FBI, I mean, decent shows. They had a little bit of a faith element in them and doc series. And so I stayed home on Sunday night, didn't come to church. And I was not using my time wisely because although these gave me kind of a warm fuzzy, they did nothing for my spiritual growth and the comfort that I needed from God himself. So this is an example of failing to use my time wisely. Wasn't watching anything really bad, but it wasn't for my benefit. And so after a while, staying home Sunday night after Sunday night after Sunday night, and I felt really alone. You know, people really, and probably because of they didn't know what to, I've heard people say, we didn't know what to do with you. So, um, and I'm sure that's true, but I began to just feel very isolated and very alone. But God really started changing my heart because I didn't want to continue living that way. I knew it was wrong. And God said, pull the plug on the television. Pull it. And I did. And so it was hard to come back, but I did. And then God used the word and the fellowship of believers and so forth and kind of pulled me out of that place that I was in. And so I began to pray for God to change my heart because my heart was broken. My heart was heavy. The guilt that you feel when you feel like you can't fix your child and you have to put them somewhere else, it was overwhelming to me. So that's my example of 
failing to use my time wisely at a time when I should have been seeking the Lord instead of seeking three television things that just gave me a warm fuzzy. So I really felt God say when I was doing this lesson, wake up, Francine. That's not how you spend your time. So I really began to pray that he would change my heart. Number four, it was a constant, he said, you have a constant diet of milk and you won't put any meat into your study. This time you ought to be a teacher. That's another, we're just saying that over and over again. So he said, you are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. You got many people sitting out here who say, I don't want any meat. I, all I want is just the basics. It's easy to understand. I understand Jesus loves me. He died. He was born. You know, he's in heaven now. And you understand all the easy stuff, but you don't want to go beyond that. And most people don't want to hear anything that's going to convict them. People, don't, people really don't want to change. And so we don't want to hear things that will convict us and cause us to grow. All they want is pre-digested food suited for a baby. That's all they want. So the milk, if we look in chapter 6, he says the milk are the first oracles of God referred to what Jesus did on the earth. So we begin our Christian life on the basis of his finished work here on earth, right? And so those are the first oracles, Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And most of us know all of that. All right, then he goes on. Peter says, since you're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. You're to be growing in the grace and in the knowledge. Really get to know God and get to know his word. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And the meat of the word, he says in chapter 6 and in chapter 5, and he's going to repeat it in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we need to really truly understand what Jesus is doing in heaven. His ministry as our high priest. We grow in the Christian life based on the basis of his unfinished work in heaven. Meat can only be handled with growth and development. You've got to have teeth to chew on it. And it, it takes sometimes a lot of chewing before you really, it sinks in and you really begin to understand it. Handling the meat of the word needs to be worked up to. You've got to have your foundation first. So the meat of God's word is not something that can be read and understood at a glance. You know, so I know a lot of people that they may, in their plan, I just did that, but I hit the deal. There's where I am. Okay, they open this. I was already here. Okay, they open their Bible, and maybe they read three or four chapters, and they get done, and what do they know about it? Not much. See, so I'm one that may only read a chapter, but I dig into it because I want to know it. So I'm not one to just say, although I used to, <laughs> because I wanted my blue ribbon for reading the whole Bible in one year. But, but now I really dig into things, and I may only do a chapter. And that's my study apart from this. So I still have a study I do over here that has nothing to do with this, because I put a lot of time here. 
So, the meat of God's word is not something that can be read or understood at a glance. It requires study, research, thought, reasoning. You're struggling to understand what does he really mean here. You've got to learn to look at context if you're really going to study. See, Jesus is our high priest. He is the son of God. He's our savior. He's the word. He's the shepherd. He is our mediator. The problem with the people in Hebrews, Jesus wasn't a member of the tribe of Levi. Remember, Levi were the priest. How can he be our priest? Well, because he's of the tribe of Judah. So now he's going to start trying to explain to him who Melchizedek was. And Melchizedek takes a lot of study. And there's all kinds of uh, differences of opinion on who he really was. And so you've got to study that. And that's where he was trying to explain it to him, And they couldn't get it. So he said, okay, we're going to stop now, and I've got to tell you about spiritual growth. Number five, they were not skilled in using the word, so they failed to apply what they learned. And I mean, I'm probably a pretty good example of that years ago. I knew a lot, head knowledge, but a lot of it wasn't applied in my life. That's what he's talking about. Immaturity, you may know a lot. You may be able to tell people a lot of things. You know the addresses of several hundred scriptures and you can quote them. But if they're not applied in your life, you're immature. That's a hard one to swallow, I'll tell you. Okay, so in Hebrews 5.13, he says, Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You are just an infant. An immature believer can listen to any preacher on the radio or television or read his book or something, and they can't identify whether he is true to the Scriptures. So they listen, they go after what he says, they go after what he says, because you don't know the Word. That's what an an immature will do. Research shows that upwards of 70% of the church today are spiritually immature and carnal. Do you think this is why the church is so ineffectual? in our culture. Yes, here's a wolf preaching. Do you think this is one of the reasons false prophets are basking in the spotlight and your true teachers are ignored? And the answer is, duh. <laughs> yeah, if, if people are telling you what you want to hear, that's the ones you want to listen to. You don't want anybody that's going to convict you and teach you truth. So let's go with Paul to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to notice he is talking to believers. Look at his wording. He says, I, brethren, I can't speak to you like spiritual people, but you're carnal as babes in Christ. All right, so do we have carnal believers? Okay. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it. And even now, you still can't receive it because you are still carnal. For where, how do we know they're carnal? There's envy, strife, and divisions among the brethren. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? One says, well, I'm of Paul. And another says, I am of Apollos. He says, you're acting carnal. These are immature, carnal believers. So in the Bible, especially here in 1 Corinthians, we can see that there are two kinds of brethren in the body of Christ. Now, being in the body of Christ, those of you that are members here, 
you are in the body of Christ of First Baptist Church. And some of you are in a body, you're still in the body of Christ, you're just at a different place. Okay, I'm talking about us here at First Baptist. Being in this body of Christ doesn't shield you from becoming carnal. You may say, I'm in First Baptist Church, I'm there every time the door's open. Does that mean you're mature? No. We have many examples, I was one of them. Now, I gave you a little chart that uh, we can get from Scripture. Spiritual, if you're growing spiritually, you're capable of eating meat. You mind the things of the Spirit, and you're led by the Spirit. If you're still carnal or immature, you only want milk. You're more interested in the things of your flesh, and you want to walk after the flesh. Your own way, your pattern. So let's look at the carnal man for a little bit who's concerned only about himself. He will not respond to the clear teachings and authority of, the God, of God's word, even though he's born again. Remember, we're talking to believers. But they don't respond to the clear teachings and authority of God's word. Their lack of response denotes they cannot digest the word of God. They just can't. Now, babes in Christ tend to avoid strong doses of the word because they know it's going to convict me of my wrongdoing, and then my conscience may prod me to change. And the bottom line is, I don't really want to change yet. Infants may even attempt to discredit the word in their desire to rationalize and justify self-serving actions. People are always trying to justify with Scripture what they want to do. Infants rebel against solid food. I'm sure all of you remember when your little child sat in the hot chair, you tried to give them their first dose or two of solid food, and they went, Pfft. Yeah, Laura was the best about that. Okay, poor Laura. Okay, they were passive and rebellious regarding their new life and position in him, and they just continued to rebel against God's commands. Jealousy, immature display, there's jealousy and there's strife. And he says, you're carnal. Because there's envy, strife, and divisions, you are carnal, walking just like a mere man. Immature believers, you see my two little birds in the upper right corner? One's got a, a mouth that just spews venom all over you, and the other one's got his fist ready to sock you. Immature believers will never listen to good counsel. They rebel, and when you see people rebelling, it affects the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. A baby in Christ has difficulty putting away his, own, his old self. He's too self-centered in his ambitions and quest for significance. Infants in Christ walk like a mere man, and they act like a non-believer. But according to this book, in 1 Corinthians, are they believers that still walk like a non-believer? They are, and it shows here in 1 Corinthians. He says, it is biblically infantile for you to name the name of Jesus Christ and continue to display spiritual immaturity and latent insurgency towards God because you refuse to adhere to the principle of his word. Y'all see my picture? 
Throwing protein-rich food from the high chair is unacceptable. It is rank rebellion. So, A.W. Tozer says, the average Christian, just average, is not Christ-like. The average Christian lives a sub-Christian life, below what they could be living if they were totally surrendered to the Lord. They, their problem is they are not willing to obey the call to spiritual growth and maturity. They don't want to mature because they're usually going to have to change their life. They're going to have to become more disciplined, and a lot of them will not do that. God is not going to compromise with anyone over the issue of disobedience to truth that he's revealed to them. He said he sheds light on all men, and he reveals truth. And a lot of people don't want to obey it. So here's a guy. He, you knowingly refuse to obey. You're going to be brought to a distinct halt in your spiritual life. God tells you something. He lays something on your heart. He, in his word, you know things you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be growing, and you just don't want to. Your spiritual growth, you don't stay still. You're going to go backward. So people are sitting, this is from A.W. Tozer, people are sitting all around in our church just as though the axle has broken and they don't make any progress for years. That was me sitting in a Baptist church my entire life. You're stopped by disobedience. Now, he says in Revelation 3, I know your works. You have a name that you live, but he says you are dead. I want to go to Ephesians 5, 13, and 14. It describes God's truth as light. Very powerful. It's able to make dead things living by just shining on them. But when anything is exposed and reproved by the light, it is made visible and clear. Where everything is visible and clear, you'll have what? Light. Therefore he says, Awake, O you sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine. He'll make the day dawn upon you and give you light. So what does this mean? So I'm getting some thoughts from uh, a commentator I like, Warren Wiersbe. He says, when the Bible talks about those who are asleep and who are still physically alive, is that who we're talking about here? The connotation is that their righteousness, which they received through faith, is not visibly evident. Therefore, the person appears to be no different than someone who is unrighteous. Did y'all get that? I think it's a pretty clear explanation. A believer and an unbeliever are sometimes indistinguishable because the believer is living a lifestyle that's no different than the unbeliever. So they're carnal, they're babes in Christ, they're immature. He says, thus the believer is sleeping. While they have righteousness, they're really alive to God. But they're indistinguishable from someone who is a corpse that's an unbeliever, and they are just dead spiritually. They're unrighteous. So, 
here's the connotation here. The living believer actually looks dead from a spiritual perspective. Everybody with me? I don't see every head shaking. A living believer can actually look dead from a spiritual perspective. But since they are actually alive to God, because they've been born again, they're called a sleeping Christian. Now, no one is physically unconscious in the church at Sardis. They're literally sleeping in this imagery. The sleeping Christian, someone who consciously lives in darkness where the light is not shining. Therefore, the Christian testimony is compromised. So what does it mean? If you continue to live like this, there's a warning, danger. Compromise means I'm being double-minded, which James talks about. Compromise, I will stand by when sin could be prevented. And compromise causes God's people to be indecisive and faithless. So the sleeping believer, the believer is sleeping. We're going to go through it one more time. They're not physically unconscious in any sense. So are they awake sitting in church? This church, okay. They're not literal sleeping, but they're indistinguishable from the unbeliever who is a dead spiritual corpse. There's your difference. Now, something happens to a vast majority of Christians somewhere along in their growing years. All of you can think of people that maybe were on fire in the beginning. They wanted to grow. They were active. They had a love for God's word. And something happens, and they quit maturing, and they go back to earlier stages. And they may just be a believer who's very carnal. When it comes to a point in our Christian walk, he says you ought to be teaching, you ought to be serving in greater capacities, but you and I get hamstrung, which we had a couple of weeks ago. We get hamstrung by our immaturity. And here's the picture I used a couple of weeks ago. What's hamstrung? You become crippled, you are rendered powerless and useless. Your efforts to grow in everything are hamstrung by your pride, maybe, or your immaturity. This is not natural. This is not natural for a congregation of believers, for people who have been born. You are not to stay as a babe in Christ. You're not to stay as a little toddler who it's all about me and you don't want to share. You can't share the gospel and so forth. It is not natural. One commentator said, you need to quit drinking the pablum of the word, settling once and for all what you believe about the basic tenets of the faith and progress on to the meat of God's word. So he said to the church in Sardis, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die because I have not found your works perfect are mature, are complete before God. You're weak, you're immature, you're acting like babes in Christ. Snap out of that spiritual sleep. And in warning three, for all of us, 
You must make spiritual progress. That warning's even for you and me, no matter where you are, because all of us need to continue to grow till our last breath. So we all need to make spiritual progress. Now next week, I am going to go on to chapter 6, but it, we needed all of this background, so hopefully this will stay in your mind, all the background, and then next week we'll go into the rest of his warning. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you uh, for your word.